Hello, welcome back everyone. Casey, I have been waiting for this day since you and I have started on this podcast. Yep, you know, early days, You, this was one of the first podcast episodes on the Divine Nine, on Black Greek Letter Organizations. You said, we have got to do an episode about this. And it has been on our long list uh, recently. Uh, it bumped, you know, we bumped it right up to the front. So there was something that happened on our campus. And we said, you know what, we need to have this conversation right now. Yes, I'm sure as many of our listeners know, and even if they do not, SCSU has received a lot of social media um, pressure um, about an incident that occurred on our campus. There was a video that was widely shared and spread of other organizations that are predominantly white mocking our D9 on campus. And so I won't go into too much detail about the incident itself as it has been widely covered in other areas of our campus and there has been statements put out by our university. However, I do think instead, this is a beautiful moment for us to uplift Black women, to uplift our Divine Nine organizations on our campus and throughout universities across our nation, and also for us to discuss the legacy and the importance and the history and the culture of these organizations. Absolutely, and it's Black History Month. It is Black History Month. And it's very clear you know, myself included, I feel very, you know, I've been kind of clueless about um, Greek organizations in general, um, and certainly these, and I've learned a lot just preparing for this episode today, and, and you know, it's humbling, and I think there's a whole lot that people don't know, and we're not going to, you know, answer every question in this episode, um, but we are going to go into the history, legacy, um, significance, um, richness yeah. of these organizations today in a way that, that I think will honor you know, their members and the impact that they've had. Yeah, especially as a predominantly white institution, this is the perfect time for us to reflect about how do we provide Divine Nine organizations with the dignity they deserve? How do we ensure that the spaces in which Divine Nine organizations exist are safe? How are we ensuring that they're safe? How are we protecting Black students? How are we making sure that Black students are feeling a sense of belonging on their campus? And we could talk about historically, what does that look like? But I think, especially for us here at SCSU, this is a good moment for us to think critically about our involvement. You know, as we evolve as a social justice institution, what does Divine Nine look like as a part of that process? And so I'm glad this conversation's happening. And Casey, we have two fantastic <laughs> guests to help us talk about this topic. Because, you know, I am not um, a Greek I'm not part of a Greek organization. I'm not part of any divine organization. So we had to bring in some other people to help us have this conversation. Yeah, so we have two guests from Southern Connecticut State University with us today. And we also have some folks who, do, who are gonna join us via audio clip. Um, our first guest is uh, Professor Dr. Audrey Kerr. She's a professor of African-American literature, um, author of a couple of books. She's done a lot of uh, historical ethnographic work around um, Greek letter organizations. And we have Tashana Williams, who's a senior student. Uh, she's an RA, she's a campus leader, uh, she's a social work major, and the president of Sigma Gamma Rho here at 
uh, Southern Connecticut State University. So to both of you, welcome. So thank you so much for being here on Real Talk. Thanks thank for you. having me. Yes. I, you know, this is a special moment for me. Tashana and I have been great friends for quite some time, ever since she started as an RBA in my building. And Audrey was my first and only Black professor at Southern. So I will give her that credit because that's true. Wow. I'm surprised to hear that. Yes. And I picked her class specifically before I left because I wanted to ensure I had a Black faculty member. Oh, the pressure. Yes. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Listen, it was a great class and it was a great time. It was a great time. I'm glad to hear that. But yeah. Four years of education and you had to really try to have one class with a Black professor. Yes. And it was not in my um, requirements. I believe it was elective. Wow. So we tried hard and we got it. <laughs> well, we tried hard and we got black it. Black women are still hovering somewhere around 4% of of PhDs. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. the odds were not good starting out for you mm -hmm. to find, to find one of us, but we're, we're a needle in a haystack, but we're here. So, um, Audrey, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where these organizations started. What was the impetus? Um, what was happening in the world that led to the founding of some of these earliest organizations? Yeah, sure. So before the divine nine, there was actually, there's one black Greek lettered organization that um, predates those and it was founded in 1904. Mm. And it's actually um, Sigma Pi Phi, also known as Boulay. And this was a very, um, and still is, um, perhaps the most elite, prestigious, closed membership organization of black men um, in the country. Um, it was founded in 1904, which is two years before the first um, member of the what became the Penn Hellenic Council, which is Alpha Phi Alpha. Well, I, I know Tashana knows this history as well, founded in 1906. Um, and um, Boulay was peopled by the most distinguished Black men in America of the time. So, you know, Dr. D Dr. Um, du Bois and Martin Luther King, um, Vernon Jordan now, Charlie Rangel, if you are a renowned black senator, very well-respected black doctor, judge, philosopher, you know these are the these are the men who still gather in this organization. It is not an organization you can seek out; they seek you out, kind of like skull and bones. Okay. Um, and um, but they are a, a separate entity. And then the um, the AKAs kind of had a, a one might call it a fissure where there were some members who were. Um, who wanted to have more than a social grouping, and it was a primarily social organization at that time. Keep in mind how rare it would have been in 1908 for Black women to actually be getting a college education, right? And they're at Howard University, and these are quite distinguished women. But then a group of women were looking for a different type of experience, and a few members and then some other women joined a second Black sorority that they called Delta Sigma Theta. Um, and they were the first incorporated um, sorority that was in 1913. So then moving forward with just the women, that was followed by um, Zeta in 1920 and then Sigma Gamma Rho in 1922. And Jashana, um, do you want to say a little bit about your organization? You're here, Solid. Of course, I would love to. 
So Simig and Moreau Sorority Incorporated was founded November 12, 1922 at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, we are the only Divine Nine sorority that was founded at a PWI. Um, a little bit more about our organization, we were founded by seven young Black educators. Um, and originally, our organization's first um, few members that we were bringing in were all also educators. Another big, big part of our history is the fact that um, it was founded in Indianapolis, Indiana. And during the time, um, Black women specifically were facing a lot of sexism and a lot of racism. So something that a lot of the members of our organization take a lot of pride in is the fact that these incredible young Black women were able to create an organization to benefit the community during the time where they were facing a lot of challenges. Yeah, and I think, and uh, Tanisha, and I think, um, uh, I'm sorry, Tashana, I think this is related that each of the four women's organizations were actually, they envisioned themselves as building a different type of tradition or adding to the tradition, right? Mm -hmm. So we think of Black community, even when we use the term Black community as monolithic. But this is really about Black women having different interests, having different desires. Mm -hmm. It's about the AKs really looking for a kind of social network of women. And then the Delta saying, no, we really want to have a community service agenda. We want to be incorporated. We don't want to just be the girl group of Alpha Phi Alpha. We want to have our own identity as professional women, right? And then the Zeta is pushing back in some ways and saying, we are concerned about what some viewed as elitism in the Black sorority culture, and we want to create an organization for educated women that um, that sort of leans more towards more heavily in public service. And then Sigma Gamma Rho that also builds on that tradition by being a core and a center for women who are in a very particular way invested in um, education. Um, so they all had unique orientations, although the traditions and the rituals are very, very uh, similar. I have noticed that, that when people tend to talk about why they joined organizations, they're typically values-based decisions. You know, like certainly like I wanted a community or I connected to people, but I, these are my values and that's why, you know, I wanted to join this particular organization. And I just think that that, that is distinct from Greek organizations broadly. Like, I don't know that in other organizations that people are joining specifically because of values. And a lifetime commitment. I mean, when you join yeah. um, a Black sorority, it is not a, an, a college exercise. Mm -hmm. um, it, you hold your membership for the whole of your life. Um, and there is even a very intentional ceremony that happens at the time of death um, that is part of transitioning um, members into what is known generally as the Omega chapter, um, the chapter of the hereafter. So it is a forever tradition um, and all of the rituals, all of the rituals are um, deliberate, mm -hmm. intentional and sacred. Yeah, I think that seems to me to be one of the pieces that I think, generally speaking, like the incident on our campus, I think is an example of this, is really not understanding that sacredness um, or, or not respecting it, I guess. But just in the name Divine Nine, 
you know, I'm sure that's an intentional signification of, of the sacredness of these organizations. It, you know, this is not a, just a social um, club or a college age thing, um, but it really is a sacred group. It's a sacred act to join. And I think it's an honor to join too. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people that are outside of the black community or outside of Greek life intentionally think about, like it's an honor to be a part of a divine nine organization. People carry that honor really highly. You know, it's hard to join these orgs. So people really value that once they're in it. Um, These are international organizations. There are global networks of people all around the world that are a part of this org. There are so many famous members of this organiz- of, of these organizations. Like this is a large, widespread thing, and it has stood the test of time. So many organizations, you know, especially new ones, haven't had a chance to stand over a hundred years. Like these organizations are historic to our foundation of Black scholarship. When I think about a Divine Nine organization across the board, there may be differences between values and founders and mission statements and even people that join these orgs. But one thing that's consistent is academic achievement, you know, priding themselves on academic excellence, priding themselves on community service, priding themselves on uplifting Black communities. Because one thing about Divine Nine organization is they're going to give back to the community. They're going to be there fighting for, fighting back against voting suppression. They're going to be there during critical moments of our history and are still are. And so I don't think many other organizations are thinking about the legacy of these orgs, but also the constant work that current members are putting in to keep those orgs alive and thriving. Yeah, I mean, some people would argue, and I think there are some legs to this argument, that Kamala Harris was able to achieve what she achieved because she's a member of a Black sorority. That that not that didn't just mobilize her sorority, but it mobilized a base of support among Black women in different sororities, um, and it was a moment of acknowledgement. I mean, let's keep in mind these organizations are emerging during the Reconstruction. It's the rebuilding of America. It's this moment where Black folks are really trying to define, uh, you know, who are we in America going forward? What's the relationship between the North and the South? And at the place where the North and the South meet. You know, at this in Washington D.C., you have these roots taking place um, on the in the mecca of Black learning, um, Mm -hmm. where Black folks are doing different sorts of meaningful organizing. Everyone from Martin Luther King, Jesse Jackson, Michael Jordan—I mean, you just—you know—the list goes on and on and on. Um, uh, Many, many acclaimed, celebrated Black folks have roots in these um, Greek-lettered organizations um, and remain active. One thing I think about is the importance of having D9s still. Some people may not understand why do we need D9s on a predominantly white campus? Why are these still something that's important and needs to be active and needs to be protected? Maybe we could talk a little bit more about how it's still relevant. Um. So speaking for myself specifically, um, as a Black woman who attends a PWI, I cannot express how important representation is. Like, for example, I've never had um, a Black 
a black woman professor. I've never experienced that before. So representation is something that is very, very important. And that was something that drew me to a Divine Nine organization, um, especially at a PWI. I can't express to you how many times I've been the only black girl in the class or one of very, very few. And that's something that is a very, very, very common experience amongst me, my staff members, um, my siblings. This is something that we all experienced because we all attended Southern as well. And that was something that did have an effect on me in the beginning because when you're a young black girl and you're on a college campus and you're not seeing anybody who looks like you, it's hard for you to confide in people because they're not understanding the shared experience. So that was something that really drew me to my chapter and something that I think is really important to remember about Divine Nine organizations, especially on PWIs, is that we don't have the same level of representation. And also a lot of the national programs and initiatives that our organizations do are geared towards um, communities of color and black communities. So they speak to us in a very, very, very personal way that other organizations don't. So yeah, the representation is, is something that was very, very important for me. And, you know, and there's this other piece of it, um, Tashana, that, that I would add to what you just said, which is that, you know, it is about um, tradition and it's also about ritual, right? Mm -hmm. It's about the importance of rites of passage at a certain age, right? That you have the ability to go through a process that allows you to bond with other women. You bond through your physical closeness, through the way you lock up with each other through your learning steps together, through the call and response, the tradition that comes from the black church, through stepping, through, you know, strolling, which, you know, you you look at um, black sororities doing their stroll, it's like you could be watching, you know, um, Diana Ross and the Supremes, right? Like the, it, the traditions borrow so much from each other and instill in us this, very strong sense that we are not rootless as a people, that we have traditions, we have ways of doing things, we have ways of bonding and connecting, and those bonds cannot be broken or challenged in the face of racism or in the face of any obstacles that um, that we have. It's a it's a link, and in fact, the you know the other Black women's organizations that are non sororities have similar philosophies like the links, right? Which is another black women's organization. Um, you know, the girlfriends, the chums, Jack and Jill, there are all kinds of black organizations, all of which are asking the same question. How is it in the face of racism, in the face of a nation that it feels as though it disinherits us every generation in a different way? How do we maintain a sense of strength and community? And, and the divine nine is, is an important part of that, especially the ritual. And something I think of, even if you're not a Greek member, people that are in divine nine organizations make space for other black folks, regardless of their membership, right? They're putting on programs on this campus and they're pulling in other black students to provide that sense of belonging. You know, these organizations are filling gaps in which our university is not filling for us. They're having programs for us. They're, we're talking about our hair, our, our roots, our ancestors. We're talking about our experiences, being the only Black person in class. You know, it's taking that gap away. So our experience at predominantly white institution doesn't feel isolated, doesn't feel alone, you know? And that's why one of the reasons I hold Greek life to such a high regard, Black Greek life, because 
it's not this closed circle all the time. It's something that all Black folks can feel a part of, not as a member, but as a member of the Black community, allowing that space to be open, um, which I think is such a, something so beautiful. That's so beautiful to hear, you know, like, because we all think, you know, all Black folks think about the, the gaps that are created when you separate off, because there's so few of us already, right? So when we separate off and you join this club, you join this club, you do this, you do this, then where's our core? But Jamil, it's so encouraging for me to hear you say that, no, 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 it's drawing us into these traditions. It's allowing us to witness, you know, to talk about hair, to have parties, to watch shows, so that it's the opposite. I'm thinking of homecoming as the perfect example, right? Black homecoming at at, at on campus is a big thing, but it's mainly big. Why? Because of Black Greek life. Mm. They host those events. They call in their alumni. And so that allows other Black students to be in community with them, right? So now you're talking to alumni of color who happen to be Greek, but you're invited into this space. You're not feeling like you're isolated, like you're not invited because you don't have letters on your chest, you're able to be in this space, to network, to be in community. Some of, you know, growing up, I didn't know Black men with degrees. Some of the first Black men I've ever met in my life with degrees have been a part of a Greek organization because I'm attending events that Greek life is putting on. And so even for Black people that are not part of a Greek organization, Greek organizations are important to them, whether or not they choose to join or not. No. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. No, please. Well, I think this this is a good moment to, to hear from a few of um a couple of Tishana's um sorors who are, are alumni, um, have graduated, but talk a little bit about that piece about so you know, you join perhaps as an undergrad, then what happens after that in that alumni um connection? So I'm gonna play these for us to bring them into the conversation. All right, here's the first thing. Hi, my name is Dr. Natasha Wright. I am a member of the illustrious Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. I serve in the local chapter of Iota Chi Sigma in New Haven, Connecticut. Sigma Gamma Rho, founded in 1922 at Butler University, represents sisterhood, scholarship, and service. However, for me, it is service. We come together locally and abroad to service women and their families. We have several programs such as Operation Big Book Bag, SWIM 1922. We have a women's health initiative. It is the service for me that I am able to unite with women across the world to serve our local communities. I am proud to be a member of Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. Hello, my name is Danielle Montague, and I am a member of Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. How do my sisters make me better? I would say that while you're an undergrad, your sisters are there to help you to represent yourself well and to represent the organization well. They help keep you accountable because you're not just walking around on campus representing yourself. You're representing something larger, and it's helpful that your sisters are there to support you and keep you accountable during those times. 
I would say after you graduate and you become a part of an alumni chapter, your sisters are there to support you through all the different life events that you go through. And as you are new to your career path, there's going to be others in your chapter who are either on the same path as you or in similar careers. And they provide guidance. They provide advice. They provide mentorship. And those are the things that help you help make you better in your career. So one thing that I hear in, in, in their responses is just really, I do hear that the legacy that we're talking about, the continuity um, through different life stages, I hear that, you know, of course, like a lot of pride, um, but also that, that, that piece of a real deep commitment to service. And I don't, I don't know if Tashana is frozen, but I just want to note the big smile on her face when she listens to her sorors. Um, just hearing their voices makes her smile. I, I don't know if she's frozen right now. Um, you know, ser service is um, service is such a big um, part of the black sorority movement. And um, when you think about, you know, in order to be in a black sorority, you're college educated, right? Um, and, but we recognize that, you know, black community often needs support outside of our opportunities or our experience. And so um, everything from early education programs, maternal health programs, um, you know, um, mobile, uh, mobile vans, uh, mobile dental vans that um, go into inner cities and make sure that children are able to get their dental checkups. Um, you know, mm -hmm. scholarship funds, every single sorority has some type of scholarship fund. Um, so yes, there are all kinds of ways that beyond the college years, well into adulthood, well into being, you know, grandparents, right? through your entire life. Um, I know families that have three or four generations of um, women who are in sororities. Um, um, so yes, it, it is, um, they are organizations that literally, as um, Tashana's soror noted, um, speak to every, every aspect of, um, every part and every phase of your life and every phase of the needs that um, exist in external black communities. And on top of that, you know, cause I've been to events hosted by Greek affiliated folks. They follow you through each step of your life. A baby shower, have you ever been to a baby shower by someone who's a part of a sorority, a black sorority? When I mean to tell you hundreds of people are coming. You got you got your bassinet. You got diapers for the next 14 years. Like the support when people hit milestones, a wedding, don't let you get married and both of y'all are in a Greek organization. Like the level of support that that organization will carry you on into your adult life is not something you see in many organizations outside of a historical black organization. I certainly, I mean, I've seen that also at funerals and it really like staggered me actually, like witnessing that kind of um, 
sisterhood and community support for someone in their moment of grief. Like just the the way that, that she was held through that, um, you know, worst time of her life. Um, mm-hmm. With dozens and dozens and dozens of people who came from all over. And you know that she was fully held, supported, taken care of by her sisters. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I have seen people travel from out of state to go support their soror, to go to an event that they're hosting. Travel from Jersey to Connecticut, from New York to Connecticut, coming from all across different states. Um, it really seems to be something that connects Black people and holds them dear. Yeah, you know, I can tell you my dad um, came to this country as a foreign student in 1956. <laughs> And he was at a very small black college in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, called Philander Smith. Almost no one's heard of. And he pledged Alpha Phi Alpha while he was there. Um, I remember as a kid him telling me some of the crazy things he had to do. He came to this country with his best friend, also from Jamaica, who was a member of, who became a member of Kappa Alpha Psi. Um, And then when they integrated Little Rock High School, um, in 1956, so two years after Brown versus Board of Education, they sent all the foreign students up north. So my father wound up at the University of Connecticut where there were no fraternities and he became inactive and got married and had kids. Was never active again a day in his life. Um, my father died 10 years ago. And when he died, I called the local Alpha chapter. Um, they didn't know my dad. He was living in Maryland where he'd retired. They didn't know me. I just picked up the phone and called nationals and I said, Hey, I'm looking for a local chapter where some brothers, you know, can come out and do an Omega ceremony for my dad. He was never really active. And within, I'm going to say 15 minutes, my mother's phone rang and it was a dentist in Washington, DC, who at that time, I think was the president of the Montgomery chapter, Montgomery, Maryland chapter. And we had calls every day from brothers offering to bring us food, flowers. Do we need any help? And then um, at my dad's funeral, lines of alphas. This is a man, again, who had not been active since 1957, right? Um, Just alphas as far as you could see for Mm. a stranger, someone they didn't know. They comforted us and it was, I tell you, it um, it was incredible. So yes, that, that was why my dad, you know, as, as someone who was not American, mm-hmm. he was looking to build ties in this country. Um, and, you know, they came through for him in the end. So it was really beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if we could talk about some of, you know, ritual um, and, and practices that are passed on. Um, because I think, you know, in part, that's what happened in the incident on campus was, I think, a misunderstanding of the significance. So we're not going to talk about that specifically, but just this, you know, like, what is a stroll? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why do these rituals, physical rituals in particular, why does it matter so much? Yeah. So one of the most, um, perhaps the most sacred part of the process of being initiated into an organization, and even after you become a member is that your lines can't be broken, right? So this is the, it's metaphoric, it's symbolic, but it's also literal. 
So when you're pledging, um, you and you are with your line sisters, the, after you cross, they become your sands because you cross the burning sands together, which means you enter into Greekdom together. Um, when So a stroll is usually um, a, a, a series of dance moves that's organized by each of the organizations, by its members. And when it's done, it's done by all of the members in a line. It's a choreographed dance. One might say it's analogous or looks like a line dance. Um, and part of respecting the organizations is that you never, ever, ever break the line uh, mm -hmm. of a dance when a black sorority is doing their stroll. Um, stepping is different. Stepping is usually in one location in a place. Um, you can think of stepping if you've seen videos of, say, um, African tribal traditions or Nelson Mandela well described it when he said when Africans dance, they don't dance from the middle of the body up. They dance from the center of the body down, which means your connection to the land and to the earth hmm. is actually the thing that is supposed to ground the dance. So the idea that you're stomping into the earth, your hands touch the earth, it's grounding you. Um, and that's, it's very, very close if you look at videos to um, traditions that come out of different um, countries in Africa. Um, so again, you don't interrupt the step, right? You don't interrupt the ritual. Um, and in terms of the, the specific moves the, that um, sororities do, which is a kind of sitting move, fraternities have a different version of that. Um, this is something that would have emerged like more recently, I would say after the, the 1960s, you went from kind of pledging to this period that um, black organizations entered into that was more closely known as hazing, right? Mm -hmm. And out of that period in time, like around 1963 and on, um, towards the end of the, of the civil rights movement, beginning of the black power movement, those were more based on calisthenics and strength. Um, how are you able to physically maintain, you know, strength and posture, position? What's your sustenance? You know, what what's what's your perseverance level? And a lot of those postures come out of that tradition. So the stroll is where you see the movement in a line. You never break the line. The stepping is sort of rooted in one position and it has a connectedness to the earth. And the standing still positions are usually affiliated with strength, strength of character, strength of body. All very meaningful. The hand symbols, which we don't do if we're not members of that of any of the organizations. I am a member of a sorority. The hand gestures usually go along with <clears throat> a tradition that the organization uh, affiliates with, uh, affiliates itself with. So it could be a symbol that mimics the look of a cat or, you know, and every sorority and fraternity has their own symbol. So for Omega Sci-Fi, it kind of looks like a Q, right? It looks like they're doing the letter Q. Um, for the Deltas, it looks like a pyramid, right? Um, and these are very intentional and it is considered, um, it's only used by members of the organization. You know, these are not things that would, you know, that someone would obviously know. Um, and one of the tricky parts of sorority culture is that it's very secretive. Right. Um, yes. They are secret organizations. And part of being a secret organization is that outsiders don't know the reasons why um, we might have some of the traditions that we have. Um, 
Yeah, it's very true. A lot of things that take place in Black organizations are kept private, which also makes it special for many folks. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why these things are kept private. Yeah. But, you know, often when you when you act, when someone asks, you know, how do I join a D9 organization? They say, do your research. And people get frustrated by that. <laughs> do your own research. But it's true. It's really important when you're looking at these organizations, even if you don't plan on joining them, to do a little research on why they exist and who they are. But even more importantly, learn about the chapter that exists on your campus. You know, these are national organizations, yeah. but... Each chapter has its own origin story, how it got to that campus. Mm. Their members may be unique to this chapter. They may have different community service that that chapter specifically does. Like every chapter has its own culture, their own people running it, which makes it different from other campuses. So um, doing your research is super important. Yeah, doing your research is important and being able to, you mentioned the importance of the local chapter. And the other piece of that, I think, Jamil, is figuring out whether or not you are able to feel a connectedness to that chapter and also the national mission of the organization. You know, one of the things that I mentioned to you um, previously is that before she died, I spoke to one of our founders Mm. in my sorority, which was um, such an honor to get to do an interview with her for my research, which was on Black social um, and political organizations and um, the, the the building of Black institutions for the sustenance of higher education. Um, and I interviewed Myrtle Tyler Faithful, um, who is one of our founders, um, and I interviewed her actually shortly before her death. Um, and one of the things that I, I found really awesome about that conversation was her talking about being a student at Howard University, walking around campus, seeing what the other sororities were doing and deciding, oh, that's not for me for this reason. But just as a 19 year old girl, right? Like not as the, you know, not as our illustrious founder, just as a 19 year old girl saying, there's something I want, there's something I'm looking for. There's a way I think about black womanhood and I don't see it here in the way that I want to express myself as a black woman. And so I'm going to create my own tribe. Right. And she does. And then and we you know, we talked about some of some of the reasons and what what needs she felt Zeta filled that didn't already exist. You know, every one of these organizations has a story. We all have a story Um, and their stories are recorded. And Howard University has their papers. You know, you can go to Howard and see papers on almost all of the organizations you can read the letters they wrote when they were disgruntled with you know you can read the letters they wrote when they were you know going through a difficult time and they were asking the university for assistance it's just incredible to imagine that they were like like you you know like Tashana they were just young people um wanting to figure out how they define their blackness in their time and place well, Audrey, I would love to play. I actually have two clips from Zetas who are current students, and I would love to hear, you know, like you've read these letters from 100 years ago. Um, I would love to hear your how you make a connection between what students are in the organization are saying today and then what people were thinking and talking about back then. So let me play these for us. Thank <laughs> you. 
Hello, everyone that's listening. My name is Janae, and I am a part of the Supreme and Sophisticated Site Omicron chapter of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated here at Southern Connecticut State University, and I joined this organization in fall 20. Uh, so what had me join this organization? Um, I had joined the organization simply off of the fact of the principles that the organization has. Um, I felt they just really connected to me in my everyday life, and I just felt joining this organization would really help me build those principles that I had already instilled in myself, um, but also just help be build me to become a better person and just a better woman in general. Um, and I think that ties with the next question of how has this organization made a difference in my life? Um, simply off the fact that they've just helped me find my voice. I feel like, um, I was always someone who was very outgoing. Um, you know, I uh, was always very active. Um, but I was also always somebody who didn't really like speak up for myself much. And, um, I never knew how to really find my voice in the crowd. Um, if that makes sense. And this organization has just really helped me, you know, find my voice. Um, I know that like I advocate for myself now a lot. Um, I know that like, it's okay to express how I feel when I'm not okay with something. Um, so it's really helping me find my voice to say like, you know, I don't like this or I like this. Um, it just really helped me boost my confidence in myself. Um, and if there's one thing I can say about Greek life in general, um, if you are interested, don't be afraid to really get out there. Um, we want to know you as much as you want to know us. So if you are interested, don't be afraid to say hi or reach out to us because, you know, we're all pretty friendly and, uh, do your research. That's my one tip. Uh, thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Jerea McIntosh. I'm a senior social work major. I am a member of the Supreme and Sophisticated Psi Omicron chapter of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. And I became a member in my freshman year, spring 2019. I joined Zeta Phi Beta because I knew it was the right fit for me. Um, I became familiar with the Psi Omicron chap chapter members at the time during Meet the Greeks of my freshman year. Um, during the breakout session, I felt very welcomed by their presence because everyone in that room, uh, everyone, uh, the members at the time had their own different personalities and backgrounds, and it made me feel that I was safe and accepted in this space to be myself. After the breakout sessions and meet the Greeks, I did my research about the organization, looked at the principles, the history, all that, so I could get acclimated with the organization. And I just knew immediately I could possibly have great potential while being a member of the organization. And eventually I was right. Um, this organization has changed me in an amazing way. I used to be so introverted in high school, would never talk unless spoken to, be introverted and shy. Um, over time, having different positions on campus and in my chapter encouraged me to break out of my shell. If the old me saw what I was doing now, she would probably be so surprised. Um, just being in this organization has helped me to become a beautiful, finer woman. I found my sisterhood. I have opportunities that I never thought I had connections and relationships to. I want a young woman who started out just like me, shy, introverted, um, you know, barely spoke, um, to eventually be in my shoes because it is possible. 
for anyone interested in Greek life listening to this, um, don't be afraid. Um, we're not scary people. Um, we want to get to know you uh, just like you want to get to know us. Um, do your research. That is a very important tip because this is a lifetime commitment. Um, this just doesn't end when you graduate college. It continues um, throughout your lifetime. And finally, uh, most importantly, be yourself. Um, we want to see the real you. Don't, you know, pretend like you have to be someone you're not. Just be yourself. I love that. I, I think um, one of the things that happens when you become a member of any of the Divine Nine organizations you have to know a lot of history. <clears throat> you have to know all of the history of your organization. You also have to learn history of the other Divine Nine organizations. There is tons and tons of history. And I think, you know, doing your research is really important, um, not just about the organization you're interested in, but really knowing a little bit about the traditions of all the organizations, you know, it's, it's black history. It's important and it's, it's exciting. Next yes. time you watch a game, Casey, next time you're watching football or basketball or, you know, like, um, and you're watching the men play, if you look, pay really close attention, you'll see a lot of brands mm. uh, all around. Um, you know, not not perhaps not one of the uh, one of the traditions we talk about the most. But um, when you're watching a game, you will see people with their omegas or with their sigmas, and you know, very common. Yeah, Jamil's laughing because we we talk about sports. He never watches sports, and I barely do. But I certainly do more than Jamil. <laughs> you guys are all I don't know that that is. I don't watch sports. This is very true. Um, I only watch sports if my little brother's playing. That's about oh. as much sports I get. But you know, Audrey, I feel like I'm sitting in a master class that you're teaching. That's what I feel like. I'm sitting in a master class. Um, but I loved what the Zetas are talking about, you know, to be yourself. So often as Black people, they were viewed as a monolith, you know, we're viewed as all having the same values, the same thoughts, the same likes, the same desires, that we have to be a certain way, talk a certain way, behave, especially in predominantly white spaces a certain way. But what these ladies are saying is show up to us as you are. And I think as Black people, that can be comforting is to realize that there's a space for you and you are good enough for that space as you are, and you don't have to show up as someone you're not. Mm -hmm. Not something as black women we hear enough in the world um, and not something that our black girls get to feel and experience that kind of unconditional, um, mm -hmm. yes, the, the idea that you can just be yourself. Um, to be a black girl is to live in a world where you are always feeling performative um, because of all kinds of intersectional isms, because of racism, because of sexism, because of classism, because of ageism, you, you name it, it can fall on your plate. 
And so I think that's that's that distinguishes a difference between these organizations for black women and perhaps I can't really speak to others, but for others because it can become you know, everything um, in, in a world that doesn't always provide those comforts to black girls and black women. And to go off of what you just said, um, when I was first interested in my sorority and I had attended Meet the Greeks, I remember they had the little breakout rooms and sessions so that you could take out time to ask them questions about the organization and the chapter. And I stuck around afterwards to just kind of talk to them and get to know them more on a personal level. And there was just that sense of comfort. A lot of the other girls in the room, they had the same majors, mere similar majors. They were in the same program, pursuing the same careers. So I automatically felt that sense of home. And then we also had like some grad chapter members that were also there so we could see what that sisterhood looked like beyond undergrad as well. So that was something that was really, really comforting to me to see a chapter of women. Um, some of them were first generation like I was. A lot of them were immigrants from the same country that my parents came from. So I did feel that that sense of comfort immediately with them. Tashana, is it still the case that you can't do freshman year? You can't do the first semester of your freshman year. You have to wait till you have a GPA. Yeah. But is it typical to join in your sophomore year? Most people that I've seen, usually it's um, junior and sophomore. Oh, interesting. Yeah, once you're kind of established mm-hmm. as a student, uh, uh, academic record yeah. seems really important too. In the sense of the university and community mm-hmm. and who you are in this space. And it's also beneficial because it kind of gives you that time to gain some sort of leadership experience before you join the chapter. So you have a lot more to bring as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's something that gets lost often. I don't think a lot of times people think about that before they try to enter into a Divine Nine organization. A lot of times people talk about how hard the process may be or how long that process may take without realizing that the real work is after you join an organization, which is one of the reasons I did not join. Uh, I'm sure folks are wondering, Jamila is speaking so highly of D9s, but not not in one. Mm. Um, One of the reasons I didn't join is because it's a huge time commitment, right? Especially during undergrad. You may be sitting on an e-board, you may be doing programming, you may be on a fundraiser chair, you may be doing the community service chair, that takes hours and time. Um, and I don't think folks are always thinking about that when they are looking towards joining an organization is that time and leadership commitment that you're going to have to bring. Um, but thankfully, there's always a chance to join an organization later on in life after undergrad has ended. But um, that's a huge commitment mm-hmm. afterwards. So that I didn't know. And Jamil, I mean, you surprise me all the time, but I wouldn't be surprised if you would join. You know, you keep mentioning, oh, maybe when I'm 55. But yeah. so that, like, how common is that to join post-grad? You can always join post-grad. Many people do join post-grad. Oh, yeah. Some people join in their grad school. Um, so it's not something limited to undergrad. And for myself, I always felt a deep connection to Black students throughout my entire undergrad experience. I probably would not have stayed at Southern if it wasn't for my fellow Black peers. Um, we were a very tight group of people. And that also was true with other people that happened to be Greek. Um, so between that and the amount of jobs I worked and leadership tiles I holded, I didn't have the space in my undergrad experience. And that's okay. Not every Black student has to join a Greek life organization to you know, partake in the community, to partake in our community. Um, that's something that can happen later in life. 
Yeah, the, the daughter of one of our founders who actually was not able to pledge when she was young um, became a Zeta, I think when she turned 95. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's definitely no expiration date. There's not. Wow. wow. And you know, Tashana, you know, I'm thinking of, um, it's important that we're having this conversation because far too often, you know, I'm thinking about this with Greek life, with Black Greek life, but also with multicultural groups on campus. And I'm sure this is not unique just to our campus, but I'm sure this is happening in other places. Um, you know, Black people are not often brought to the table of programming when it comes to organizations that are predominantly white. You know, they, they call folks for when it's time to do a stroll, when it's time to perform, when it's time to rap and sing and dance you know, for entertainment purposes and not for scholarship, not for programs that are meaningful. Um, and so I think this is also a good time to talk about other organizations coming to the table as us, um, coming to the table with Black and multicultural groups. I know I was speaking to Jamil about this before, but this semester we really wanted to make it a goal to do programming as Black women to make a safe space for conversations of things that we kind of talk about more so behind closed doors. So things like um, the over-sexualization of Black women or mental health and how it affects Black women. Those are things that we kind of talk about, you know, with our friends in our more intimate conversations. But I think it's important that we create that bigger and broader space to give other women that sense of comfort to educate and also really creating a space for non-students of color to also learn about our experiences as well as well because this isn't just a safe space for us as um, black and brown students we also want especially as us being a social justice institution and thriving for that I think if that's what we really strive to do it's really important as well that other people who want to be allies and want to stand in solidarity with our community also take the time to come to our programs and learn about the things that that we experience and the things that we have to say because even thinking of my experience as somebody who wants to be like a licensed clinical social worker and i'm a black woman there are already certain things that i understand as understand as challenges that my community faces because I went through them. Whereas somebody maybe who grew up in a predominantly white community who also wants to be a social worker, maybe they don't see that same perspective because they didn't grow up in a certain environment. So it also gives those people that space to understand some of the things that they, that they or the people that they work with might face as challenges because they came and they, they wanted to learn about some of those things. So that's something that we're definitely um, trying to focus on this semester broadening our audience and the people that we bring into our programs, because it's not just beneficial to us, it's beneficial to um, non-students of color as well. To show that. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a real balance between maintaining an enclave where you are like free to be a home space, free to be yourself, support one another, where you are sort of insulated from the pressures, wider pressures of the university and maintaining that. But also, as I'm listening to you talk, I mean, as someone who's a professor at this university, I, I mean, that's a heavy lift. What you're, you know, creating these spaces for these hard conversations, educating your peers, um, that that is a huge service to the university, um, mm -hmm. and a heavy lift. I just, I mean, yeah, I can definitely say that. Sometimes we put a lot of work into the things that we do, but we forget how much we're putting into it. And I can even think of um, last week when I had attended a meeting and another black RA in another building came up to me and she said, I just want you to know that, you know, 
even though you're not the most outgoing person, you're kind of quiet. I just want you to know that like the work that you put into things and you know, your leadership and who you are as a person is not something that goes unnoticed. Mm -hmm. And it's true because we, we do put a lot of work into our chapters, into our organizations because we're passionate about it. But for somebody else to come up to you and say, hey, it doesn't go unnoticed. We see you, we see the work that you put in. It really means a lot because our goal is to create those safe spaces for other people to be able to learn and feel comfortable. And you know, that kind of validation really just be coming from black people. And throughout my experience, you know, some of the things that keep you going, keep your leadership going, keep you involved, keep you mentoring is your fellow black peers. Could those be the folks that come up to you, congratulate you, tell you you're doing a good job and make you want to keep moving forward? Because it can be tough, especially when you put on programs that are catered for a non-Black audience and non-Black people don't show up. When you try to put a program on to have intentional dialogue, but you're having dialogue with the same people that's involved in social justice already and are also marginalized themselves. Those conversations, if anything, becomes frustrated because it's hard to even get non-people of color at these tables. Even when they are invited personally, it can be super frustrating. And so I'm hoping as, you know, we progress as a university that non-students of color feel, com one, comfortable going to these events, because I don't believe all students are comfortable attending these spaces, mm -hmm. but also critically think about the importance of attending these kind of events opposed to something more social. You know, I and I just, to piggyback off that, I want to say that, um, you know, these black organizations have always had white members, right? Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt is an honorary member of, you know, Alpha Kappa Alpha and all of our organizations, Sigma Gamma Rho has white members. So black, ex primarily black organizations are generally not exclusively black. Boule is an exception to that. I think it's pretty exclusive. Um, you know, one big piece of this is that um, Mary Helen Washington was the scholar who said that black women often wind up being the domestic workers of the academy, which is to say that when there's one Tashana or when there's one Audrey, right, what happens is nobody knows that you've already been asked to serve on 10 other black committees, right? And so you're spread very thin. And the weight of that is enormous. I remember it being enormous Tashana when I was an undergrad. Um, and it's enormous, you know, now it's always big. And um, th there's an invisibility and a hyper visibility that's happening at the same time. Everybody sees you as a black woman. They see you as whatever they want to see you as. And then also nobody is seeing all of what you're having to do and all of what's going on and all of the hats you have to wear on a college campus yeah. and the code switching, the code switching constantly. You're talking to this person, you're in your sorority, you're here, you're there. And you're, you're having to constantly, you know, that class where everyone suddenly turns and looks at you because something black comes up. It's like, it can feel like death by a thousand little needles. Um, and sometimes it feels like, you know, um, so I say that to say that um, these these organizations are powerful and centering, but yes, it is important that people recognize the particular heavy lifting that black women's organizations have had to do. If you took a look, Jamil, I don't know if you were able to, if you saw the recent um, 
housing protests at Howard University. I sure um, did. And and you will note that it looked like about 98% of the people who were fighting against these 60-year leases in tenant housing were Black women. Boom. So it, the heavy lifting is kind of everywhere. And so it's important that our organizations, whether they're social organizations, whatever they are, also be places of healing and recognize this is for people who aren't in the organizations, black or white, that um, support is never, ever, support, interest, education is never rejected. I've never been to a black event um, that was about education where anyone was made to feel that they weren't welcome in my life that I can think of. I'm so glad you bring that to the forefront and that it centers black women in that discussion. And I think that's a, a hard pill that black men need to hear um, because there, there is a difference with how black women in leadership have to operate in spaces. And I could think about so many of my friends that are, were SGROs or Zetas or part of these organizations that carry so many jobs, mm. right? You're an RA on campus, you're an OA maybe, you have two different other student jobs or you work off campus, you do programs on campus, you do programs for your job. You're babysitting you're your cousin on the weekends. <laughs> you're mentoring 50 students on the side, you're volunteering at the local high school. And then every time a situation happens, right? Mm. A, a racial injustice situation happens on campus. Who do you see on the phone with admin, black women? Who do you see at the front lines talking to admin, negotiating a deal, black women? Who do you see leading protests, black women? And they have been historically, even outside of Greek life organizations. When you talk about social movements, when you talk about the cornerstone of families in the black community, you have to think about Black women and that burden that is often put on Black women. That same expectation is not always shared for Black men. Um, and I love how you brought up Howard University because so many Black women were out there fighting. And I have said this to a couple of my friends before, where are the Black men that are supporting these Black women, right? Like, what is our job to support Black women in their fight for injustice, yeah. right? How are we supporting them in misogyny? We often talk to Black women about racial injustice, but then we're really silent when it comes to misogyny. Like, how are we supporting Black women in their fullness, in their entirety, and not just in their Blackness? And sometimes we may even be absent from that conversation. Well, thank you for saying that. I do appreciate it. <laughs> I'd be asking the question to myself sometimes. <laughs> Where we at, y'all? Did, did I miss something in the mail? <laughs> Poor Jesse Jackson was falling down. They're like 10 black 19-year-old, 20-year-old women holding him up, taking him to the hospital. All women. Yeah. But that's something black women have historically always done without even being asked. They will uphold the entire community and no one would even bat an eye. And not getting all the credit. No. And you th even think about black families. The cornerstone of a black family is a black woman. When Big Mama dies, they go the whole family. The whole family falling out. No one got any act right. <laughs> Y'all know, black women they run the family. They run the community. They run the church. The first ladies in the church with the hats. Don't play. 
They keep it. We, they keep it us all together. They keep it us all together. And they're probably in a black sorority. I tell you, I tell you, black faculty, black women faculty, they are on every committee. I don't care what committee you. They are on every committee. You name it. They got anything social justice on it. They on it. Anything non social justice. They on it. They at every speaking engagement. They done spoke at fifty of them in a year. They had all of them. They wrote all the books. They did all the research. Lord. If you can see everyone's faces. I'm tired just listening to you. I'm just saying. And then let's not talk about the gender pay gap. Lord have mercy. You're starting another episode. I tell you, we should. I just had to tell the people, listen, black women are tired. (laughs) They're getting tired of us. I'm going to take a nap when we're done here. Okay, well, you're, you're setting us up perfectly to hear from our last person today, who is a Black woman um, and a Black historian professor um, at our university talking about her um, experiences in AKA. Um, and so, yeah, let's, let's hear from Siobhan. My name is Siobhan Carter-David, and I'm currently a 21-year member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. I was initiated through Alpha Delta Chapter at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, back in fall 2000. And since 2016, I've been an active member of Theta Epsilon Omega Chapter here in New Haven, Connecticut. I initially joined the sorority because I was committed to the vision that the founders had for sisterhood and service to all mankind back in 1908. And I was also very impressed with the women who were on our campus and wanted to be in fellowship with them. Um, What I've gotten from the sorority cannot be measured. Um, I have found sisterhood in every city I've visited or moved to. I have received unparalleled leadership training to push me forward in my civic activities and in my career. But most importantly, uh, being someone who statistically wasn't supposed to make it as far as I have in terms of education and accomplishment, I am convinced that being chosen for this sorority um, and being in fellowship with these amazing women gave me the confidence to believe that I could accomplish great things since my sorority sisters could do it. I knew that I could as well. But woo, didn't she say it though? Mm-hmm. Didn't she say it? Yeah. Um, I, I knew I could do it because my sisters did it. Yeah. And we, we come, you know, I could listen to Siobhan talk all day. All day. You know, I'm from the same hood. We're both from the Bronx. Mm. Oh. And, um, yeah, and, and both do, you know, African-American studies. Um, and she's my sister, mm-hmm. you know, as well. Um, and now I have Tashana as a sister, you know. So, um, yeah, we, we link up together, too. And, and welcome in others. It's not just about Greekdom. Um, yeah. So we link up with each other, too. Yeah. I, I'm, li- I'm liking the whole, because my sisters could do it, I could do it. Mm-hmm. And we don't often talk about the importance of peer support, you know, looking at your peers and seeing what they can accomplish and then guiding you. And then eventually you guiding another group of students and that passing of baton, Mm -hmm. of guidance, of wisdom, of support is so needed in higher education. It's so needed in our Black spaces. Because for so many of us that are first generation, we couldn't do it without our peers, without our Black support. And that's why we, 
we need to support Black organizations on this campus that are Greek life and non-Greek life. We need to support them. Mm -hmm. We need them on these campuses. So many times people think of why do we even have these organizations? Because they're needed. Um, there's so many reasons. I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful we're having this conversation. It's really, it's humbling because my, my longtime impression has been associating um, Black Greek organizations with excellence. You know, I'm used to seeing, you know, people who are leaders, members of these organizations. So I just associate them with accomplishment. Um, and the depth, actually, you know, I just actually don't even, I feel like we're just scratching the surface here, you know, for those of us who are, you know, outsiders to organizations. Um, but the history, the legacy, I mean, folks who are listening, you know, they can hear that sense of, I mean, we're not asking people to, to say when the organizations were founded or to speak in particular ways, but you can just hear across organizations that sense of legacy, connection, commitment. Um, it's really, it truly is humbling um, to understand that the, the, it's, it's far deeper and more significant than I thought. It's certainly important to American society, to our university systems, um, and really couldn't be more relevant today than it was, you know, a hundred years ago. That's that's true, and you know the the need for it persists, but the function it serves changes with every generation, um, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it adapts to the times. <laughs>